This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Today's episode is one of the group of episodes in which I have some updates to make. The website stephenjtrigar.com no longer exists. So instead, every time I mention stephenjtrigar.com, know that you should go to alexandriamedia.org instead. I apologize for any confusion, but it is part of the process in transferring the Composer Chronicles over into my new company, Alexandria Media. So just remember, anytime that I use stephenjtrigar.com, just go to alexandriamedia.org instead. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Hey there! I wanted to catch you at the top of the episode to let you know that my Patreon page is changing its name and URL. Rather than the page saying Stephen Trigar and the URL ending with Stephen J. Trigar, the page is fully transitioning over to the Composer Chronicles. All members of the Patreon page will continue to enjoy all the same benefits as before, including early access to ad-free versions of every episode, access to the Patreon podcast unscripted, and all other benefits one can find at higher levels. So, if you are listening to this episode and you hear me reference patreon.com slash stephenjtrigar, that is no longer a valid URL, as I have changed it over to patreon.com slash thecomposerchronicles. I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you on my Patreon page. Judith rides in the carriage next to her new husband. Beyond the veil of rain, and occasionally illuminated by flashes of lightning, her new home can be seen in the distance, getting closer and closer. Bluebeard turns to his new bride and asks if she wants to stay, and he even offers her an opportunity to leave. But Judith is too invested to leave now. The carriage pulls up to the front door of the castle, and Bluebeard leads his wife into her new home. All is dark. No light can be seen anywhere, and Judith refuses to live in the dark. She insists that all the doors be open to let light enter into this black oblivion. She tells her husband that she loves him too much to let him live in the dark but he retaliates by saying that there are places in this castle that are not to be explored. If she loved him without any question, she would abandon her fears and curiosity. But Judith persists. Bluebeard gives in to his wife's request and leads her to the first door. She opens the first door and reveals a torture chamber. The walls and surfaces and devices are all stained with blood. Judith jolts back in horror, but now she is intrigued and must continue. She timidly opens the second door, and behind it she sees a room filled with weapons. Nothing truly out of the ordinary here, except for more blood. And with a deep breath, she approaches the third door. Behind it, she finds all of her husband's riches. Gold coins, 
jewels and beautiful artifacts fill this room to the brim. For a moment, she is elated at such a sight, but something catches her eye. All of it is stained with blood. Judith moves on to the fourth door and is delighted to see a secret garden filled with fragrant and beautiful flowers. She bends down to pick one up and shrieks at the realization that they have been recently watered with blood. She quickly leaves behind the garden and thrusts open the fifth door to reveal his vast and glorious kingdom. Relieved to see the sun at last, she looks upwards to the sky to soak in the sun's rays, but the clouds are a bit strange. They cast blood-red shadows across Bluebeard's kingdom, and she turns around to her husband as if to ask why there is so much blood. Bluebeard pleads with her to stop. With five of seven doors open, the castle is as bright as it can get. Judith refuses. She has come too far to be stopped, and she rushes over to the sixth door. Suddenly, a shadow passes over the castle, almost undoing Judith's hard work of bringing light into the castle. She opens the sixth door, expecting to find a blood-stained room, but instead she stands before a still, silvery lake. The lake is made of tears, and Bluebeard falls to his knees and begs Judith to just simply love him and cease her questions. The last door must be shut forever, but she pushes him to the floor and heads for the final door. As she walks, she asks him about his former wives and accuses Bluebeard of murdering them. Whose blood was all over the castle and whose tears filled that lake? Are there bodies rotting behind the seventh door? An eerie calm passes over Bluebeard and he hands over the final key. Judith nervously inserts the key into the keyhole and turns. She slowly opens the door. At first, it is too dark to see anything, but the faces of three women come into view as Judith's eyes adjust to the darkness. Bluebeard's three former wives are still alive. They emerge silently from the room, dressed in crowns and jewels, and Bluebeard prostrates himself before them announcing them as wives of dawn, midday, and dusk. He turns to Judith and begins to praise her as his wife of the night. She begs him to stop, but he ignores her cries and dresses her in similar jewels. Her head drooping under the weight of the crown, she follows the other wives along a beam of moonlight back through the seventh door. The door closes behind her, and Bluebeard is left alone in total darkness. This is a tale told in Bella Bartok's only opera. Its haunting tale is just the surface of the psychological thriller, and while some modern productions don't follow the original staging to a T, there are plenty of directors who jump at the chance 
to reimagine this dark and sinister work. This is The Composer Chronicles, a podcast that delves into the stories of history's greatest composers and their works. I'm Stephen J. Trigar, and this is episode number 10, Be Wary, Bartok and Bluebeard's Castle. In 1908, Hungarian writer, poet, and film critic Bela Balaj conceived a play based on Charles Perrault's fairy tale, La Babe Bleu, translated as Bluebeard. Although it was envisioned as a play, Balaj wrote it knowing that it would one day become an opera. Balaj had intended the libretto to go to his roommate, Zoltan Kodai, but when he completed it in 1910, it was dedicated jointly to both Kodai and Bela Bartok. Kodai had been fascinated with folk songs of his native Hungary, and so in 1905, he packed up his bags and visited remote villages around the country to record people singing songs onto phonograph cylinders. Years later, he would meet Bartok and take him under his wing. Bartok, too, had become fascinated with folk songs, just as his mentor had, even as far as traveling around to collect folk songs. I'll explain more about that in a little bit. In 1907, Kodai returned from a trip to Paris and came carrying over scores by Debussy. Up to this point, Bartok had been fascinated by Richard Strauss, a composer I introduced to this podcast in episode number 9, and aimed to emulate the Straussian flair in his own music. However, after being introduced to Debussy for the first time, Bartok dropped his infatuation and began to truly envision his own style. Balazs' play was the perfect opportunity for Bartok to test out his new ideas involving folk melodies, since the play itself was embedded with spoken Hungarian folk rhythms. Together with the folk melodies, harmonies, and colors inspired by Debussy, and an orchestra fit for a Strauss tone poem, Bartok wrote the opera in 1911 to submit it to the Ferenc Erkel Prize competition before the deadline. Bluebeard's Castle did not win this competition, and so in 1912 he submitted it again to the Hungarian Fine Arts Commission. They too rejected the work, saying that Bluebeard's Castle was unfit for the stage because it only had two roles and an orchestra so large that it would cause too many problems. Bartok was crushed by the news. As a result, he nearly stopped composing to concentrate on collecting and arranging folk music. He started his collecting in the modern-day Carpathian Basin, which was at the time the Kingdom of Hungary. Here he collected not only Hungarian folk tunes, but Slovak, Romanian, and Bulgarian as well. He would then move on to Moldavia, Wallachia, and later Algeria but the outbreak of World War I would halt his expedition, and he was forced to return home. 
Once he was home, he was inspired to compose again. His first piece since his return was the ballet called The Wooden Prince. This is such a beautiful work. You should definitely check that one out. The Wooden Prince was finished by 1916. The success of The Wooden Prince's 1917 premiere was just what Bluebeard's Castle needed to be recognized. Egisto Tango, the conductor of the premiere of The Wooden Prince, wished to also premiere Bluebeard's Castle. And so Bartok took to his score once again and rewrote the ending before the premiere on May 24th of 1918 at the Royal Hungarian Opera House in Budapest. The score was dedicated to his wife at the time, Marta Ziegler. The two had been married since 1909, when he was 28 and she was only 16 years old. Their son, born the following year, was named after him, but his relationship was strained by his poor health and the outbreak of World War I. He and Marta would divorce in 1923, just two months before Bartok would marry Dita Pastori, one of his piano students. He was now 42 years old and his new wife was only 19. I can't help but be slightly reminded of the character of Bluebeard when thinking about Bartok's own love life, minus all the blood and locking away of his precious bride. It took quite some time for Bluebeard's castle to gain traction in the operatic world. Part of this was due to Bellagio's exile in Vienna and Germany, and then later in the Soviet Union, as well as the ban of any Bellagio's work. Productions popped up in Frankfurt in 1922 and in Berlin in 1929, but the opera wouldn't truly gain some traction until the late 1930s. Today, Bluebeard's Castle is considered one of the greatest 20th century operas, both for its innovative musical material and for its thrilling story. After the break, I'll talk about all the details that cause this opera to be considered unfit for the stage, as well as some interesting ones that enhance its dark plot. It's a brand new year, and you know what that means. It's time for us to reflect upon the past year and to set new goals. If you're someone who sets New Year's resolutions and never sticks to them, make this year a year you stick to those resolutions, especially if one of them is to live a healthier lifestyle. 
If you're like me, I spent so much of 2020 stuck inside my apartment. I couldn't go to the gym, and most of the exercise I did was just walking around my neighborhood. What else could I do? I had no equipment, and at most I had a slight knowledge of minimal equipment exercising from my days in CrossFit, but even then those were a bit much. When I found Roy Belzer Fitness, that was when everything changed. Every weekday, I wake up with an email in my inbox containing a new workout video, and I can do that workout whenever my busy schedule allows. Better yet, in these videos, Roy does the workouts with us, so his words of encouragement mean all the more to me who is sweating up a storm. But Roy Belser Fitness isn't just a daily workout routine. It's a community, a shoulder to lean on, and a body-positive space where all are welcome and are free from judgment. Via a private Facebook community, every student gets to share their own journeys and encourage others to keep going. We all get to engage with each other every day, sharing sweaty selfies after workouts, nutrition tips and recipes, and posts that keep us accountable for one another. When you sign up for Roy's class, you not only get to join this incredible group of people to keep you accountable, you also get a free nutrition guide and the opportunity to win incredible prizes like free memberships and cash prizes. You can get back on your weight loss and fitness journeys right now when you sign up for Roy Belzer Fitness. Just go to RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up or click on the link in the show notes and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout to get 10% off your first month of classes. Again, that's RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your first month. This new year, Let's stick to our New Year's resolutions together. Join me and a wonderful community of like-minded individuals living healthier lifestyles in a body-positive space with Roy Belzer Fitness. Before the opera has even begun, all you have to do is take a look at Bartok's list of characters for the opera. In it, you will see Bluebeard and Judith, as the two main characters of course, as well as the spoken bard at the beginning, and the silent wise at the end. He also includes the castle as another main character in the opera. There are several speculations as to why. Balash himself stated that the castle isn't actually a real castle rather a projection of Bluebeard's soul, and to be seen as a separate entity from the Bluebeard we see on the stage. Another is that the castle itself is the host of other unseen and spoken creatures. Stage directions call for occasional ghostly sighs that seem to emanate from the castle itself when some of the doors are opened. Directors interpret this direction in varying ways. Some will use instruments to make these sounds and others will use voices. Regardless of what is used, what other unknown horrors are hidden in the walls of that castle? 
As soon as the opera begins, depending on what production you are present for, you may see or hear a person speaking to the audience. They ask questions to them, such as, where is the stage? Is it outside or inside? Occasionally, the voice will instruct the spectators to pay close attention to the events about to unfold, as the morals of the tale they are about to witness can apply both to Judith and Bluebeard as well as the real world. A recent production from 2015 takes this prologue to a whole new level. At the beginning, you just hear this wind slightly blowing through the trees, and there's no actual leaves being rustled. You just hear the crackling of the dead trees around, and this deep, grovelly voice comes in from the depths of of, of nowhere and it's just so raspy and deep and it starts to speak in Hungarian and mixed with this crackling of the trees it's just spine chilling and I just think it is one of the creepiest and greatest things that has ever been put into an opera production so I have a link to the entire production in the show notes I suggest watching that whole opera, but just watching that prologue is absolutely incredible and I hope you enjoy it. After the prologue, Bluebeard is seen bringing his new wife Judith into his castle, asking if she is still willing to go through with this marriage. The audience sees a single dark hall surrounded by seven doors around the perimeter. After each of the doors are opened, a stream of light symbolically colored to represent the contents of the room, shines through into the main hall. The torture chamber is colored a blood red, the armory a very light orange, almost yellow. The treasury is a deep golden color, and the garden is a brilliant blue-green. The kingdom lets a flood of white light into the castle, prompting Bluebeard to beg Judith to stop here, since the castle is now as bright as it gets. Once a door is opened to the Pool of Tears, the main hall is darkened to leave a silver moonbeam shining through the seventh door. In modern productions, most of these colors are adhered to, but Judith and Bluebeard actually enter into the room, leaving the main hall depicted only at the beginning of the opera. Musically, Bartok gives several auditory hints to the listener that something is going on. The use of a minor second interval is referred to as the blood motif, since it appears every time Judith notices blood in each of the rooms. If you're not familiar with what a minor second is, picture a piano and press a white key where there is a black key directly above or below it. Here's what that sounds like when played together. Not really noticeable to the ear unless previously studied, the opera starts out in the key of F-sharp, and by the middle, when Judith opens the fifth door, it has made it its way to the key of C. The interval between C and F-sharp is called a tritone, an interval that has been associated with evil and the devil for as far back in music history as we can go. To help you put the orchestral hesitations of the Hungarian Fine Arts Committee contest judges into perspective, the score of Bluebeard's Castle calls for four flutes, two of them doubling on piccolos, 
two oboes, an English horn, three clarinets in A and B flat, with the first two doubling on E flat clarinets and the third doubling on a bass clarinet, two bassoons with one of them doubling on contrabassoon, four horns, eight trumpets with four of them being offstage, eight trombones with four of them also being offstage, a tuba, timpani, varied drums and auxiliary percussion, a tasteria, basically a xylophone requiring two players, two harps, a celesta, organ, and a full string section. That's massive. That requires so much space in the pit orchestras that quite often they don't have the space to do that. But Bartok believed that all these instruments were necessary as they supported the psychological undertones of the opera. They certainly do. As an example, the celesta is used primarily in the treasury to depict the glittering gold and the jewels, and the organ is used to portray just how grand Bluebeard's castle and kingdom is behind the fifth door. Without this orchestra, the drama would be very flat. As so much of it is spent in the dark, Bluebeard is basically emotionless for most of it, and Judith is just different shades of curious. But what is all of this for? Well, as the Bard states in the beginning of this opera, sometimes life takes us down a dark path that we didn't expect to take. Whether we are curious about what mysteries lie behind a thing that we find fascinating, like Judith's fascination with figuring out what happened to the missing women who were all connected to marrying Bluebeard, or we just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. So just remember, be wary. I just wanted to thank Roy Belzer Fitness once again for helping me get back on track with my weight loss journey and keeping me accountable for my new healthy lifestyle. Join me and his incredible community of like-minded individuals in a body-positive space at RoyBelzerFitness.com. Offer code CRONPODCAST at checkout. See the information in the show notes for all the details. This episode of The Composer Chronicles was written, researched, and produced by me, Stephen J. Trigar. Music and sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on StephenJTrigar.com. The Composer Chronicles is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CRONPODCASTS. That's C-H-R-O-N podcast. So be sure to follow the show and share it with your friends and family. Also, there is a membership to the show through Patreon. For as little as $1.50 a month, you will get ad-free episodes and other resources for the show. So click on the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash Stephen J. Trigard to show your support. If you like the show and want to rate and review it, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.
Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.